Good morning, everyone. Okay. <laughs> it's nice to be with you all again. Uh, again, it's just a privilege to be with you uh, while Pastor Bill's away on sabbatical. <clears throat> and so, as Hojin said, throughout this whole month of July, we're going to be talking a lot about what it means to be the church uh, in a series titled Together. And uh, my real hope in all of this is that there would be some helpful conversations had among your congregation. Uh, I understand that uh, there's just a lot of change, as has been the case with many churches you know, all over the world. Uh, just trying to ask good questions about what it means to be the church. What does it look like to do church in our day and age? And so uh, in line with that today, I want to start with a little game called Church or Not a Church. Okay? So uh, I don't know how this will go, but we'll, we'll see. Um, the real goal is for you to start thinking about what a church is and what it isn't. I want to encourage you to think about the kinds of things that churches do, right? What are the things that happen in a church? What is supposed to happen? And so the way this is going to work is I'm going to call out some things. I'm going to ask, church or not a church? I'm going to ask if you think it's a church, you know, you raise your hand. I'm going to ask if you think it's not a church, you raise your hand. And we're just going to see what happens, okay? So everyone just test your arm, make sure it works, okay? Way up there, just so I can see, because the lights are kind of bright, okay? You can wave if you want, all right? So we're going to start easy, okay? Ready? A building. Church? Anyone? Wow, you guys are either disengaged or really, you know, with it. Not a church, you think, right? Okay, all right, that was an easy one. How about a 501c3 corporate entity? Is it a church or not a church? Okay, you guys are like, oh, you're an idiot. Okay, no, don't worry about it. Okay, how about this one? This one's a little bit harder. A campus fellowship. Think about what happens in a campus fellowship, right? Church, anyone? Some of you, all right. Not a church. Okay, all right. Here's another. I'm kind of going out on a limb here, so don't leave me hanging. Would anyone be willing to say, for you, you who said church, why? Why do you think a campus fellowship qualifies as a church? Anyone willing to share? I was specifically told not to do this, so that's why. It's all right. <laughs> all right. How about anyone who, who answered not a church? be willing to share why you think that's not a church. That's okay. All right. Okay. Lesson learned. I won't do that again. Don't worry. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, how about this? Um, a Christian school or seminary. Church? Not a church. Wow. Okay. All right. What about a worship concert? Think about that. Lots of worship, praising Jesus. Right? Jesus is the center of it all. Yeah. Right? Church? Anyone? Not a church. Wow. Okay. All right. How about this? Uh, relief organization, like World Vision or World Relief. You know, they're hands and feet of Jesus. They're going out. They're serving the poor, healing the sick. Right? Church? Not a church. Okay. At least we got a couple people with church. How about not a church? Okay. All right. I'm going to get. Um, what about a support group? People who come together for um, support around mental health or Alcoholics Anonymous, church, okay, 
some people. Not a church. Okay, interesting. Um, what about a book club that studies only the Bible? They get together, study the Bible. Church? Not many. Not a church. Okay. How about a house church? Church? Huh, interesting. Not a church? Not sure, right? <laughs> uh, how about CrossFit? Church? Not a church. Most of you. Okay, I have a pastor friend who insists that CrossFit is her church. It's where she finds deep connection and safety and belongings. It's interesting, right? Um, all right, last one. Cornerstone. Church? I hope so. <laughs> Not a church. Don't, don't worry. Just keep your hands down. The purpose of this exercise is to point out that when we say the word church, um, we may be talking about very different things, right? I'm sure many of you have heard the expression, uh, if it looks like a duck, walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. But what about a church? Churches come in all shapes and sizes. Some are big, some are small, some are formal, and some are very casual. Uh, some build elaborate cathedrals and stadiums, and some don't have any physical buildings at all. Right? Some focus on sacraments, while others focus on preaching and scriptures. Some are really passionate about global missions, while others are more about personal discipleship, and still others are committed to social justice and activism. Some are loud, some are quiet, some are diverse, some not so much. How do we know what a church really is? What is it supposed to look like? Uh, I had a friend who once told me about the time that he and his family went to a buffet, and his Korean dad came back with an ice cream cone, and he's halfway through eating it. And when he, when he asked, like, does this taste strange to you? And my friend tried it, and he said, Dad, like, that's butter. And so this buffet had different flavors of butter in different colors. So it may have looked like ice cream. It may have even been cold like ice cream. And apparently it even tasted enough like ice cream that my friend's dad had no idea anything was wrong until halfway through. That's gross, right? But it was definitely not ice cream. On the other hand, think about a Sunday, right? A Sunday might have lots of toppings and extra things added on top of it, but it's still ice cream because it meets the minimum requirement, which is to actually be made out of ice cream, right? What's the minimum requirement for being a church? What makes a church a church? A church might also have a lot of toppings and extra stuff added onto it, right? But if you boil it down to its most essential characteristics and function, what is the essence of what it means to be the church? Just like anyone needs a job description in order to be successful at their job, wouldn't it be helpful to have a job description for being a community of people following Jesus? How do we know we're doing what we're supposed to be doing? How do we know we're doing it right? As I shared last week, after 25 years in church ministry, I left my role in order to rethink how we do church. So I've been studying and thinking about church nonstop for the past several years, and I'm going to state my whole thesis right up front. The church is not a building. 
It's not an organization or a brand or even a weekly religious service. The church is not the programming or production or even a place. The church is the people. And it's always been the people. Church is a community, a family. It's the people of God. And the moment we lose sight of this, we start to lose our way. You all know the nursery rhyme, right? Like, this is the church, this is the steeple, open the doors and here are the people, right? It's wrong, okay? Here is my simple, bare minimum definition of a church, okay? A church is first and foremost a community that practices love for God, love for neighbor, and love for one another. That's it. Bare minimum. It can do many other things, but this is the essential characteristic. If you were to ask, what makes a church a church? My answer would be love. Love is the essential ingredient. It's what makes a church a church. And I know to some of us, that might sound a little too simple. Right? What about all the other important things? Let me make my case. Okay? I'm going to go through like a barrage of scriptures. Okay? What's the greatest commandment? Love. In Ephesians 3.17, the Apostle Paul prays that the church be rooted and established in love. Right? He uses two metaphors. Roots of a tree, foundation of a building. Right? Be rooted and established in what? Love. Right? 1 Corinthians 12, love is the most excellent way. 1 Corinthians 13, love is what remains and is the greatest of all. 1 John 4, 8, God is love. And I like to say this, if God is love and we are made in God's image, what does that make us? Love. There's a quote from Thomas Merton I come back to often that says, to say that I am made in the image of God is to say that love is the reason for my existence, for God is love. Love is my true identity. Selflessness is my true self. Love is my true character. Love is my name. That is the essence of who we are, and it is the essence of what it means to be the church. Jesus' final marching orders to his disciples before he was crucified was to love one another. He could have said a million other things, but he said, love one another. It is the main thing. It is our prime directive. A church can have and do many other things, but without love, the Bible says we are nothing. Just a resounding gong, a clanging cymbal. I might even go so far as to say that a church without love is not a church. Or at least not Jesus' church. Because Jesus himself said the way others will be able to identify us as followers of Jesus is by our love. Paul says the only thing that counts, the only thing that actually matters is faith expressing itself through love. So if you're looking for one thing that is first and foremost, one unifying principle that ties everything together, the scriptures are remarkably consistent. It's love. No other word in the Bible is treated with such primacy, aside from Christ himself. 
So love is the essential ingredient. If we get that part right, everything else will follow. And if the defining characteristic of a church is supposed to be love, then doing church must primarily be about relationships. There's a well-known saying in real estate <clears throat> that there are three things that matter in property, right? Some of you know it. Location, location, location. And of course, there's many other factors, but it's the one thing that undergirds and overrides them all. And likewise, I would say that there are three things that matter when it comes to church. Relationships, relationships, relationships. It's not about the show. It's not about the programs. It's not about much of what happens here on stage. It's about relationships. It's about you all. The problem is relationships are hard. And it seems nowadays they're even harder to come by. Over the past few decades, American society has been in the midst of an epidemic of loneliness. There's a few stats. Nearly half of all Americans report sometimes are always feeling alone or left out. One out of five Americans say they have no person that they can talk to. Nearly seven in 10 millennials are lonely. And 22% of millennials in a YouGov poll said they had zero friends, which is tragic. But Gen Z is even lonelier. Gen Z is being called the loneliest generation. All this means if you feel lonely, you're not alone. I talked a little bit last week about how when it comes to forming deep, meaningful relationships, it seems like the odds are stacked against us. We are more busy, more isolated, more distracted and disconnected from each other than at any other time in history. And then the pandemic came along and just made everything worse. Loneliness is literally killing us. In addition to higher rates of depression and suicide, lonely people have a 26% higher risk of dying from high blood pressure and heart disease. Health experts say that loneliness is as damaging as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Everyone, everyone is longing for belonging. It is a universal human need. We want to know and be known. We want to be seen and heard. We need to know that we matter. Mother Teresa said, a little bit of a long quote, but it's really good. The greatest disease in the West today, he's talking about here, is not tuberculosis or leprosy. It is being unwanted, unloved, and uncared for. We can cure physical diseases with medicine, but the only cure for loneliness, despair, and hopelessness is love. There are many in the world who are dying for a piece of bread, but there are many more dying for a little love. The poverty in the West is a different kind of poverty. It is not only a poverty of loneliness, but also of spirituality. There is a hunger for love as there is a hunger for God. If only God had some sort of solution to this problem. If only there was some kind of thing where people came together for the purpose of loving God and loving one another.
where we, we can be loved unconditionally and accepted and come just as we are, where we could use our gifts and personalities to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. Wouldn't that be awesome? Obviously, God does have a solution to this problem. It's called the church. I love this description of God in Psalm 68. It says, a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. And listen, God sets the lonely in families. How? Through the church, also known as you. But how do we do that? As I said earlier, there are many important and valuable things that churches can do, like worship and prayer and studying the scriptures, etc. But today I want to focus on what I think is one of the most untapped secrets to church vitality and growth there is. Okay? Are you ready? Food. That's right. Food. Dinner lunch or brunch, it doesn't matter. If we were to be asked, what do you need in order to have church? Some might say, you know, good music or a sermon or a pastor or a nice sanctuary and, you know, all good answers. But I would say food. Some of you are like, I agree. Amen, Pastor Eugene. We definitely need more food. Remember from last week, the early Christians devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Acts 2.46 says, they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. And where did they learn to do this? From Jesus, of course. Jesus was constantly feeding people and eating with them. He dined with sinners and tax collectors. He described the kingdom of God as a banquet. Jesus instituted the breaking of bread in his last supper as a remembrance of him whenever his disciples gathered together. And interestingly, if you look at all of Jesus' post-resurrection encounters with his disciples, the majority of them involved food in some way. Heaven itself is described in the Bible as a great wedding feast. So I do not think it is any stretch to say that God may have intended food to play a much more significant role in the Christian life than we typically think or practice. See, the early believers devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. It's just bread. It's a staple food. Whether you're rich or poor, everyone ate bread. And the breaking of bread holds deep, universal significance. It means the same thing in every culture. Breaking bread means welcome. The Bible doesn't provide us with a lot of details about what these meals were like, aside from a few references in the New Testament. But in a letter that was found from a Roman magistrate to the emperor at the time, the magistrate gives a report about this new religious sect that met in the early morning to, quote, address a form of prayer to Christ as to a divinity. They're like, what weirdos, right? And they would reassemble later in the day to, quote, Eat in common a harmless meal. 
Little did they know how potent and world-changing this harmless meal would be. In other writings, this meal is referred to using the word agape, which is the Greek word for love. And so it seems before the church had pulpits and pews and platforms, the center of their worship was a table. A table. According to early Christian sources, it seemed this agape or love feast was a common meal that was open to anyone. It was basically an ancient potluck. The food was provided by those who came, and any excess was distributed to the poor. It was a simple practice, but I believe it was one of the keys to why they were able to enjoy the favor of all the people and why the Lord added to their number daily. Think about it. They gathered in homes, shared what they had, cared for the poor, and loved one another deeply. I mean, who could resist? More recently, uh, there's been some hip new churches emerging that have started calling themselves dinner churches. And, you know, they think they're so cutting edge, right? Like they discovered something innovative and revolutionary. But, of course, they're just doing it old school. Like old, 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 old school. They're just recovering something essential about what it means to be the church. Being devoted to the breaking of bread is not... It's not just about the bread. It's, it's, it's about much more than food. It's about the centrality of love and relationships in the Christian life. That is why they were called love feasts. And the amazing thing about the breaking of bread is that anyone can do it. Everyone eats. Everyone gets hungry. The genius behind it is that there is no genius to it. You don't need a master's degree in theology. You don't need an encyclopedic knowledge of the Bible. You don't need to be a charismatic speaker or have influence or social media followers. You just need a table, some food, and a heart of love. And you can engage in one of the most powerful acts of Christian ministry there is. There's something about coming together around food that breaks down barriers. Daryl Davis is a musician from Chicago who, uh, since the 1980s, has managed to take down over 200 Ku Klux Klan members. And by taking them down, I mean he somehow gets them to give up their hoods and leave the Klan. These men renounce their ways, they change their lives, and you want to know how he does it? He doesn't shout them down or try to intimidate them. He doesn't return anger with anger or use any force at all. He simply spends time with them. He listens and he offers them friendship, probably over some good food. And did I mention, he is a black man and a follower of Jesus. He says, we spend too much time talking about each other at each other, past each other, and not enough time talking with each other at the table. It is unfortunate that these days Christians can sometimes be known for taking a confrontational approach to people who don't agree with them. 
But we are not supposed to win others over by defeating them or inviting them to debate. We're supposed to invite them to dinner. It's not about having an agenda or trying to convince people to change their minds. It's about seeing and valuing them as people. Somehow, coming to a table as equals has a way of disarming and inviting people into something much more powerful and transformative and healing than any apologetic or evangelistic tactic. A loving relationship. I believe that's what ultimately drew sinners and outcasts to Jesus. They must have sensed that he was different from all the other rabbis and teachers of the law. Of the law. They must have known that he genuinely loved and cared for them. I mean, think about it. Why else would they want to be with him? Jesus ate with people who were labeled sinners and outcasts. He even included a tax collector among his closest friends and even the one who would betray him at his table. How big is your table? Is it big enough to fit the people Jesus would have invited to dinner. Jesus said, when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. How are we as the church making space to include those whom others might exclude or marginalize? I love hearing how Cornerstone is gathering for meals and worship, and there's good stuff going on, so keep doing that. Maybe you, as a congregation, already gather and, and break bread together regularly, but if not, perhaps you might be inspired and challenged to do just that. Invite people to a Sunday night dinner or a Saturday brunch and open it up. Maybe you start it as a monthly practice or every other week, and and just see what happens. It might be two or three people, or it might be 20 or 30. The size of the group doesn't matter. The essential ingredient is love. And so find some way to make that intentional. I find that when gathered, uh, just level playing field, just coming to the table for dinner, a simple open-ended question can invite people to open up and share more about themselves. Who was your hero growing up? That's a good question. What's well, a high and low from the week? Tell us about an experience that changed your life with genuine humility and curiosity. We can make a hospitable space. And to some of us, that might not sound like the most spiritual activity, but I assure you, there is nothing or few things more spiritual and spirit-filled than practicing empathy and kindness toward one another. Friends, the key to church is relationships, relationships, relationships. What would it look like for this community to put that into practice? What would happen if you broke bread together more often or in new ways and made more space at your tables? so that others might be invited in. Nowadays, there are just, being honest, more and more people who are never gonna walk through the doors of an institutional church. But they might come to dinner. 
And I know it can be difficult to find the time and energy to do this, but I want to remind us that people are lonely, including some of the people who might be seated right next to you. Maybe the lonely person is you. People are starving for connection, but there is spiritual food here to share. We can offer warmth and hospitality and a place to belong. We can welcome the lonely into families. So how might you be more devoted to the breaking of bread in your life? How might you prioritize relationships, relationships, relationships? Can you make a plan this week and maybe put something into motion? Some of you might even have plans to hang out today or share a meal after service, and so I might might regret this, but may I suggest that you ask one another, so what'd you think of the sermon? And discuss. Is he on to something? Or maybe he was just hungry and he just wanted to talk about food. I want to close today with a prayer for hospitality. The words are going to be up here so you can just allow the words to sink in and you might echo this prayer in your heart. Holy, three-in-one God, you are love, the very pattern of hospitality. May we respond to your invitation today to welcome the stranger as we have been so welcomed by you, to let go of fear and hostility, that we may embrace kindness and compassion, to be held in your safety, that we may be safe and gentle with others, to remember your generosity, that we may give freely and graciously, to know your joy, that we may smile easily and laugh often, to see your image and beauty, in all who cross our path. Fill us with your holy love, O God, and create in us a heart of hospitality that is warm, spacious, and open. And all God's people said, Amen.